Return to the Lord your God, for He is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Joel 2.13. Oh, very good. Well, you've got a great start on it. So what you want to do is take your memory verse uh, out of your bulletin right now and put that in your pocket your po- or your uh, wallet or your purse or your shoe or tape it to the back of your phone. I don't care. But... Uh, Let's memorize this and think about how powerful that verse is. Of course, this is not the only time God reveals himself to us as merciful, compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. In fact, uh, we will find God reveals himself that way four other times in the Old Testament alone. This is part of the very character and nature of God. But it's important for us to keep this in our heart because the context and, and the message of Joel... It's a pretty hard one, as we're going to be talking about. And, and uh, for us to understand the hope that, that is in this book of Joel, we have to realize that God has revealed himself right at the beginning, chapter 2, his very nature, his desire. He is eager to relent and not punish. Now, he is a God that is filled with unfailing love. And so, Joel, if you've read the book before, uh, it talks a lot about locusts. A whole lot about locusts. And we don't have locusts up here, but I looked online. I tried to find some pictures. There's different kinds, but they have like these. They're like grasshoppers with big wings, and they have little horse heads. Ugly. I was going to show them, but they're ugly. I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, and it's got armies. It's a book where you have you know, destruction and armies that, that are threatened to come in. It's a book that talks about Armageddon and the end of the world. And it's one of those books that's intimidating uh, for most believers. And uh, for actually for most people, you look at the book of Joel and most people read it and they're like, locusts and armies and destruction. Ah, this is scary. But we're going to go through it because there's a powerful message of hope and redemption in this book. Uh, and so we want to make sure we get there. Now, the very first verse of the book, like most of the prophets, as it was written, gives you a little overview or tells you kind of a little thing about it. And the first thing that this verse says is the Lord gave this message to Joel, son of Pethuel. doesn't tell us a whole lot, but this is a message from God. This is not Joel didn't just come up with this one day and say, I, I have got a great idea. This is God's message for us. And so we should listen. And he gave it to this guy named Joel. Who is he? We don't know. We don't even know when he lived. We know he was a prophet. That's, that's what we know. Um, the time that it was written, somewhere between the 9th and the 4th century. That's a long period of time. And the reason why is because unlike most of the other minor prophets, most of the books of the Bible, this one doesn't talk about what king was in power. It doesn't talk about... Those types of things. In fact, it it focuses more on the meanings of events. And I think God didn't give us a time or place for this because the message of Joel is timeless. And therefore, even more so, we need to listen up. The audience of the book was the southern kingdom, Judah. If you remember last week in the map, you had Israel. The northern ten tribes were called Israel. The, The southern two tribes called Judah. This message goes to the kingdom of Judah. And... uh, and a time that uh, they had just survived a disaster. A disaster of historical proportions. Um, now, we would understand uh, in terms of maybe like a 500-year flood, right? We, we kind of get that. Now, locusts 
where he's writing from, their community was devastated by a locust infestation. Now, locust infestations were not totally unheard of, kind of like up here. We hear about floods and we hear about fires. They happen. But there's a difference between your regular 10-year flood and your 500-year flood and your 1,000-year flood, aren't there? They went through a 1,000-year locust infestation. Most locust infestations were bad, but they were quick. The locusts would come in, they would eat stuff, they would fly away and leave. As we will find out, that was not what happened with these locusts. It was wave after wave after wave after wave of withering destruction, and it left the nation in shambles. And this is a nation that is now at, at, on the other side of destruction, and they're finding themselves rebuilding, and God has a message for them, uh, an object lesson from the locusts. Because it was a nation that was also not just destroyed by locusts, but it was a nation on the brink of national disaster. God uses this book to warn the nation of Judah. Listen, you see those locusts? There's going to be an invading army. It's going to be just that bad, if not worse, if you don't turn. And so there are a nation that was destroyed and on the brink of disaster. That's not an easy time to go and prophesy to people, by the way. I can't imagine. Here's how the book is laid out. If you read the book this week, which I encourage you to do, there's three chapters. The very first verse gives you the very brief introduction. That's all you get. Then the very rest of the first chapter talks about the, first, the past judgment, the one that they went through, the locust infestation. And then it, it gives you some things. Why, what would we learn from this? The next chapter, chapter 2, focuses on the near judgment. The one that's being threatened, and that's invasion. That's all of chapter 2. third chapter goes to, to Armageddon. It goes to the end times, the, the future judgment, uh, the end of the world. And that's basically what that one focuses on. And so you have past, present, and future judgment. Then the purposes of this book are, are threefold. The first one is to remind the nation of the nature of judgment. This is how judgment works. This is what we can learn from the locusts. God is teaching us something about judgment. So here's a lesson to learn. The second thing is to warn the, against the, the immediate judgment. This book was written to a real nation that was on the brink of, of being judged by God. And God was warning them. And so this was a direct warning for that, com that country. And uh, we can learn a lot from that. The third thing is it's a prophecy of the inevitable, inevitable judgment. Of Armageddon, it tells us there's the end of the world is coming and this is how it's going to go down. And so uh, that's the threefold focus of this. The theme, I don't know if you've heard this word many times repeated already in the sermon, but the theme of this book is judgment. Just as much as last week, it was faithfulness in Hosea. The theme of, of Joel is judgment. And so, yeah, not the most uplifting, but powerful and important. So there you are. So let's get into it. First chapter... Here's how it begins, first chapter, right after you have that introduction. Verse 2, it says, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. In all your history, has anything like this ever happened before? Tell your children about it in the years to come, and let your children tell their children. Pass the story down from generation to generation. Okay? This is something that is unlike anything that happened before. And then he talks about, how bad this infestation was. It says, after the cutting locust finished eating the crops, the swarming locust took what was left. And then after them came the hopping locusts. And then the stripping locusts too. Like just when you think it's done, it's not done. It was bad. 
It was very bad. Now, he addresses four people in this first chapter, four groups of people. The first is elders. Some books, um, some translations translate it as leaders. But actually, in the Hebrew, the word is basically old guy, the old timers. And, and if you look at it, it, it may be that he's talking to the leaders of the country, because back then you had some elders that were leading. But, but in context, it really looks like it's the people who knew the history of the country. It was truly the old timers. And he says, think, of, think back. In all of your history, what your parents and grandparents went through and what they told you, has anything like this ever happened? No. And he's, he's talking to those that have some experience. And he says it hasn't happened before. And, and what he's teaching them is this, is judgment, it's, it's not limited by past experience. I think a lot of times people will say, we don't have to worry about so and so and such happening because it's never happened before. When God brings judgment, things that have never happened before happen. That's, that's part of judgment. And, and it lets people know that judgment is unprecedented. It doesn't have to have a precedent. Just because God has not done something a certain way before doesn't mean He can't do it now. And so, relying upon my experience is, is not a wise thing to do. When I limit God saying, God can't do something because I've never seen Him do anything like that before, that's, that's not a great thing to do. And the people of Israel are going to need to learn this, this lesson pretty quick. The next group are the drunkards. But not for the reason that you would think. It says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all your wine drinkers. All the grapes are ruined and your sweet wine is gone. Now realize, back then, almost everybody drank wine because it was safer than the water. Right? That's just kind of one of the things. It was part of it. Drunkards, though, he's not coming against them because of their drunkenness, although that's not a great thing. That's not the purpose of this. He's talking to them. These are the people who overindulged on prosperity. These are the people that took for granted that there was always going to be an abundance. There always has been. In fact, when you read this passage, it's, it's, it, um, in this whole chapter, uh, it talks about the drunkards, when he talks about them, he talks about how they're just surprised that what they counted on being there is now gone. And he says to them, listen, uh, judgment is swift and it's consuming. In fact, part of the passage in this chapter, it says that, that the wine like, was swiped, like they had it in their glass and it was coming up to their lips and it was taken away. I think oftentimes we look at the world around us and we feel a false sense of security by what seems so normal. We, we look at prosperity and we say, God can't bring judgment here to us. We're too powerful. We're too rich. We're too comfortable. We take for granted prosperity. And what the prophet is showing them here is, listen, judgment is, is unexpected. It'll hit you in the places that you don't think it can hit you. The nation before this swarm came in, these locusts came through, had all kinds, probably a really great harvest. It's probably a nice year. Usually when locusts come through and they swarm like that, it's because there was a lot of moisture, right? And they had good conditions, which helped the locusts grow. But it's also good conditions for crops. It was probably a bumper crop year. Everybody looked out there. The farmers would look out there and say, we're going to have plenty. We have plenty. We're going to have plenty for a long time. We are secure in our prosperity. And boom, 
Just like that. Swarms of locusts come through. And not just a few, but but after the first group went through and they left a few grapes, more went through and destroyed all the grapes. And then more went through and destroyed all of the vines. And then more went through and just destroyed everything else. To rely upon a presumption of prosperity is a foolish thing to do. Judgment comes unexpectedly. Third group, priests. It says, weep like a bride dressed in black mourning for the death of her husband. Ah, oh, what a picture. And it says, there is no grain or wine to offer at the temple of the Lord. So the priests are in mourning and the ministers of the Lord are weeping. And he talks about the priests and the fact that they, there was, the destruction was so bad that even, even their, their, the, the offerings to God were halted. And I think what we, we sometimes don't understand is that, that uh, judgment it was unavoidable. Every segment of society is hit. And I think sometimes we think to ourselves, well, if, if I'm in the right class of people, then I'm secure. Right? If, if, I, if I have enough prosperity or I have enough whatever, then I will be secure and I will buffer myself against God's judgment. And what the priests show us is like if any group of people should be buffered against God's judgment, probably be the priests, what most people would assume. And even the priests were hit. Even the priests were affected. Judgment, as we go, as you read through that portion, you realize that judgment is no respecter of position. You can't somehow position yourself in life in such a way that God will, will say, you are beyond my reach. That you are untouchable because of the position or what you've done in the past or, or who you are or where you've surrounded yourself or the wealth that you have or whatever. This was God's chosen people, Judah. And these were God's chosen servants for His temple. And judgment reached them. Judgment is, is something that can reach every person at any time. We are all vulnerable to it. And it's important for us to see that because to rely upon my position or some false sense of, of that God is going to just respect me, I'm too good, I'm too whatever, that, that's, a, that's pretty unwise to, to think that you are beyond the reach of God. The third group that was hit by this locust thing were the farmers, clearly. They were the first hit. And it's to spare you farmers... Wail all you growers, weep, because the wheat and the barley and the crops, the field are all ruined. They have lost their livelihood. They didn't just lose their livelihood, they lost what, even the things to rebuild their livelihood. It was bad. With the farmers, we recognize that judgment was unrelenting. It just wave after wave after wave after wave. Just when they thought they had the worst of it, more came. And when they thought that they got worse than that, more came. The farmers were completely devastated. And the lesson here is that judgment is devastating. That you don't mess with the judgment of God. God is not some fluffy being up in the sky that we can poke all day long. He is powerful and He is holy. To, to rely just upon His mercy is an unwise thing. To say, well, God won't completely destroy because He's just too kind. God is kind. 
He's loving. He, he, he wants to relent. He wants to forgive. But when he brings a hammer down, he brings a hammer down. And something we need to understand about judgment. Judgment is not discipline. Judgment is judgment. It is devastating. How bad is it? Worse than you are prepared to handle. That's how bad. We should fear judgment, rightfully so. And I know that's not a message that's popular, but it's a message from God. And I think in our society, in our world, we've become so comfortable with God that we've become a little too loose with Him. And we think of Him a little too lightly than we ought to. He is a holy God. And there is a reason that the angels tremble in heaven before Him because He is powerful and He is mighty. There's a reason when the prophet saw him, he fell down and said, I am basically dead. I am an unclean man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. When we see God for who he is, there is a, there's a fear and a reverence that is built into us. We, we don't mess with God. And we need to remember that. And God reminded the nation of that when he brought these locusts. They were devastating. It was merciless. You do not want to face... The judgment of God. And so, with that, the prophet moves into the second chapter. And he talks about a different judgment that's about to come. And he says this, Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem. Raise the alarm in the holy mountain. That's the temple mount. It says, Let everyone tremble in fear because the Lord is upon us. Now, he's, he just talked about the past judgment. The, the locusts that went through the land. And he said, learn the lesson from that because there is, God is about to bring judgment upon you. So be ready. And there's some things he tells us about this. The first thing is it's going to be a day of devastation. He says it's a day of darkness and of gloom, a day of thick clouds and deep blackness. Now what he's referring to is when the, when the locusts come into a land and they come in swarms, what happens is there's so many of them, they darken the sky. It looks like a massive cloud, but it sounds like chariots, apparently. It's so deafening and loud, and you can see it coming over the hills, just this unstoppable march. You know it's coming, but you can't stop it. And that's what he's referencing. He says, suddenly like a dawn spreading across the mountains, a great and mighty army appears. There were locusts before, but God will bring an army this time. And nothing like it has ever been seen before or ever be seen again. Does this sound familiar from the first chapter? Unprecedented. God is going to bring a judgment. It's going to be like the locusts. It's going to be unprecedented. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to happen fast, rapidly. It's going to hit them when they didn't think that they were vulnerable. It's unavoidable. There would be no escape. Just like they couldn't escape the locusts, they were in everything and everywhere. This army was going to be unescapable unavoidable, and it was going to be unrelenting. Just as the locusts brought complete destruction, so this army was going to completely destroy the land. God was basically saying, remember what those locusts did? It's going to be like that, but worse. So listen up, prepare. The next thing we find out, which is even more terrifying, is that this, that this army that God's going to bring down is from him. He's speaking to Judah, God's chosen people. And he's talking about bringing a Gentile army in to destroy them. And the people of Judah surely would have thought, God is with us. In fact, that was their battle cry. Whenever the people of Judah went to war, they would blow the horns, the trumpets, and they would shout, God is with us. God's on our side. That's why we're going to win. 
But look at this army that God's bringing down. It says the Lord is the head of the column. God's not even just part of the army. He's leading it. And he leads them with the shout. This is his army. And they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? For those who think that, hey, I'm on God's good side, so he's never going to do anything against me. God's like, you know what? You better be on my side. I'm not on your side. You better be on my side. (laughs) I think that's the lesson here. The people of Judah got sloppy with God. I don't know what they were doing. The the prophet doesn't really talk about it much, what exactly their, their sins were. But apparently, somehow they got off track and they started doing things their own way and they assumed God would somehow just follow them. And God was saying, nope. And for all the people who say that God can't use enough foreign army to bring destruction, God was saying, I can do anything I want, anytime I want, with anyone I want. He is God. And this army would be inescapable because if God was for this army, then who's protecting Judah? No one. And they realize the weakness of their thought that says, well, we grew up in the right city. We were God's chosen people. We were favored by God's people. And therefore, we'll just enjoy God's protection no matter what we do. We're going to abuse God's grace all day long. And God can't do anything to us. That was being shattered. And God said, this army is for me. So watch out. But just as there was a possible judgment that was coming up, the knowledge of judgment brought the possibility for deliverance. And that's why in verse 2 it says, that's why the Lord says, turn to me now. There is time. Give me your hearts. Come to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. God's telling the people, this doesn't have to happen. In fact, that next verse, there it says, that is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is still time. Right? He says that there is deliverance here, but it has to be through repentance. God's not just going to save us. He's not going to allow us to abuse His grace day in and day out and day in and day out forever. He is a holy God. And He says, I won't destroy you. I don't want to destroy you. I don't want to bring destruction upon you, but you need to repent. There is time today, so repent today. Because you don't know how long it's going to be when this unexpected, unprecedented army comes in. Repent. And here's the amazing thing about our God, is that He's merciful. And if we repent, it says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is merciful and compassionate. Slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent. Eager, do you get that? And not punish. God's not this big bully up there who's just waiting there, just hoping that you mess up so he can smack you. He's telling the people this because he says, listen, I don't want to bring this destruction on you. But if you keep abusing my grace, if you keep walking away and and trying to make me look like I'm, I'm for all these awful things that you're doing, there will be judgment. I don't want that to happen, so repent. And here's the amazing thing. If we repent, God is merciful. He is merciful. That is in his very nature. And we will be saved, not by the repentance, but by a merciful God. God's mercy is available to the repentant. That's one of the most amazing things that we find. People say that the God of this Old Testament, this judgmental God, is so different than the New Testament. No, it's the same God. 
And God shows us mercy upon mercy. But that mercy is for the repentant. And we must remember that. Now, the nation did something amazing. It repented. I mean, this is like one of those times in the, New, in the Old Testament, right? Where the people did what was right and it just blows your mind. I mean, you saw, I mean, the army was ready to go. God was ready to charge. And, and somehow the people heard the message. And this is what it says. It, it says, Then the Lord became jealous for his lamb and had pity upon his people. In response to his people, the Lord said, I am sending now you, I'm sending grain to you and wine. And you're going to be satisfied. And, and, and no longer are you going to be made a mockery among the nations. It was in response to the people. What did the people do? They repented. They heard the message of judgment and they turned to God and they said, we are sorry. They didn't just do some religious act where they tore their clothes because they were sad that they were going to be judged. They tore their hearts and said, I can't believe we offended God like this. And they turned back to him and they said, please forgive us, but change us. And what did God do? He didn't just forgive them. He said, you know, all the stuff that, was, that came upon you with the locusts and all that, I'm going to undo. I'm going to give it, you're going to be more prosperous than you were before because you turned to me. That's how cool God is. They turned to him. This is one of the only times in the Old Testament you get to read like a happy ending to a prophet. Right? He, they did. It's amazing. And then, and then, God throws in this little extra thing at verse 28. It says, and after doing all those things, after I restore to you everything that was taken away, he says this, after doing all that, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. All people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Your Holy, the Holy Spirit, which up to this point was reserved only for the prophets and the kings. I mean, God would put His Holy Spirit upon certain people at certain times for certain reasons. But no, like everybody having the gift of the Holy Spirit, well, that didn't happen. And God said, you know, I'm going to do one better. There's going to come a time where I'm going to give my gift to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to actually be with all people. And you know that was fulfilled? In Acts chapter 2, there was Pentecost. And God poured His Spirit upon the believers. And it was an amazing thing. And then, and when we get up to Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, and Cornelius is baptized and Gentiles come to faith, the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles too. God didn't just say, I'm going to reserve judgment, but I'm going to, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to bless you. What an amazing thing. There's also something that Joel says in Joel 2.32 when he talks about repenting. And he says this. He says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For some on Mount Zion and Jerusalem will escape, just as the Lord has said. These will be among the survivors whom the Lord has called. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You ever heard that before? Yeah, we hear about it when we read Romans. You see, it's the same God. If we put our hope in ourselves, we put our trust in, in all the things around us and all the, the forms of false security we put around us, then we're going to be destroyed. But if we turn to the Lord, every single person who puts their trust in the Lord is saved. From the beginning to the end. That just shows the consistency and the love and the mercy of our God.
Well, the nation averted a great catastrophe. And that's one of the reasons we don't know who Joel was, because the nation wasn't destroyed then. Right? How cool was that? And I love the fact that the nation wasn't destroyed then, because we learn a lesson that God will relent. When God decides he's going to judge, if, we, if there was still time to repent, that there's still time to avoid disaster. And that's a great thing. But the third chapter, Joel moves into a judgment that is unavoidable. One that, that God is patient and is putting off. It says out of his love for the world, he doesn't want anyone to perish. But there is a judgment that is coming. And it's the future judgment. It's one that has not happened yet. It's chapter 3, and it says this. At the time of those events, says the Lord, when I restore the prosperity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather the armies of the world into the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means God is judge. There I will judge them for harming my people, my special possession, for scattering my people among the nations and for dividing up my land. There is a day of judgment that has come into the world. This hasn't happened yet. And this is what he says about that one, the day of the judgment. First, he says it's going to be a day of justice. Let all the nations be called to arms. Let them march to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I, the Lord, will sit to pronounce judgment on all of them. God will choose what is right and what is wrong. There is a day when everyone in the world will will face God as judge. And it says, arm yourself. Come at me, bro. Bring your best. But God will judge. And he's going to do justice not just for the nation of Israel, but for everyone in all of the world. It doesn't matter if there's people that have never heard of him, don't believe in him, don't think he exists. God's not so much concerned about that. A day is coming when this world will be judged by God. It's unavoidable. It's also, we find out, that's going to be a day of devastation for the guilty. It says, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come and tread the grapes for the winepress is full. The storage vats are overflowing with the wickedness of these people. God has seen how this world has gone. Really, he's given us an entire creation for humans to to try to run this world the best that we can, right? God stepped back. He said, all right, people, you want to see if you can run this world better than me? I'll let you. And look how the world is. How awful the world is. There is no justice, no love of God, no peace, no security. Prosperity is hoarded while a lot of people just starve and die. We do a terrible job as people. We really do. we, We get so much at thinking that I know what's right and what's best, and we impose those rules on other people as we kill them because we disagree with them. We do all kinds of horrible stuff to one another in the name of our own self-righteousness. We are not good world leaders, right? We're not good gods. And God says, I've seen your wickedness, and He's being patient. He's waiting for people because He knows that every day there are some who come to faith. And it says in Scripture, He's just waiting, but there's a time coming when, when the wickedness of humanity will have reached its full measure and God will say, I can't take it anymore. It's full. And when it's over, it's over. And he's coming back. And there will be judgment. And it will be devastating. Just like those locusts. It's going to be a day that uh, is unprecedented. A day like no other. It'll be unexpected. It's going to hit like a thief in the night. 
The world's going to be saying, hey, let's go get married. Let's go do all these other things. And Jesus is going to come back and, and it's going to catch everyone off guard. It's going to be unavoidable. There's going to be no place for anyone to run when Jesus comes back. It says people will run for rocks. They will try to hide in mountains and hills and caves. But God will bring everyone to the hill of judgment. Everyone. And it will be unrelenting. There will be no mercy on that day for the guilty. It will be like the locusts. And that's, I think, what he points out here. He says thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. There the day of the Lord will soon arrive. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will no longer shine. Again, he's talking about what was it like when judgment came with the locusts. It's going to be like this. You know, Jesus actually talks about this. In Mark 13, it says, at that time, and Jesus is talking about his second coming or the the end of the world, the judgment. He says, at that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give no light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of earth and heaven. It will be a day of devastation for the wicked. But it will also be a day of deliverance for God's people. It says, it says this in, in the 3.16 here. It says, The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder in Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth will shake. But the Lord will be a refuge for His people, a strong fortress for the people of Israel. You see that We know judgment is coming. We were like Israel who was standing at the precipice of a mighty judgment. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know God is going to bring judgment. This will be His army that is going to come to this earth and bring judgment. The time is coming. We are like Israel. (laughs) We are like Judah, staying there with with their judgment in chapter 2. We can't stop the inevitable second coming, but we can respond wisely. There is time for repentance today. There is time to still to turn to him today. We'll be wise like them. For those who are, that day when the Lord returns will not be a day of peril or destruction. It will be dark and scary. It won't be uncomfortable, but it will also be a day of our deliverance. It will be a mighty and a powerful day. A day that will be remembered throughout all of the ages is a day that God has finally come and brought justice to this world. It's a day we both fear and look forward to. An amazing thing. And God is going to save His people and it's also, it's just not that He just saves His people. He does it by His grace. God's going to do this because He wants to. Because He loves us. He is a God that is, that is filled with unfailing love. He's slow to get angry. I think that's a great thing. He, he, he's, he's eager to relent and to not to punish. God wants us to avoid the day of destruction. He wants us to be delivered but it's going to require something of us. We need to repent. And so, so we look at this book and we look at the application. The first thing is a judgment. This is the nature of it. Judgment is unprecedented. It doesn't, just because it has never happened before doesn't mean that it can't happen. It's unprecedented. It's unexpected. Just because it doesn't look like God's going to judge, just because all the conditions don't look all doom and gloom doesn't mean that judgment is not out there just on the doorstep. It's unavoidable. Just because you think that you might be secured and you've buffered yourself, don't trick yourself. When judgment comes, judgment comes. And you won't be able to avoid it. And it's unrelenting. It's worse than you think that you... It's worse than you are prepared to handle. 
That's the nature of judgment. Judgment should be feared. It says judgment is also devastates the guilty. It does. That's, its de- that's, why it, that's why God brings it. It's punishment. It's not discipline. Discipline is to raise other people up. It's to bring, us, to bring out our best character. This kind of judgment is punishment. He is, he, God wants to relent and not punish. Punish means you've offended God this much. That's how much you have to pay. You have to suffer. The wine presses are going to be filled with our unrighteousness. It's going to devastate the guilty. For all the people who think that it's going to be fun in hell, they have no idea who God is. There is some nitwit on Twitter right now texting as though he is God. That's his name on there. He has no idea whom he's blaspheming. No concept. For all the people who think to say God is some imaginary friend, they have no idea who they're dealing with. God will devastate the wicked. And we need to love these people enough to tell them the truth so they can turn while there's time. But judgment delivers the repentant. You get this. We have all sinned. All of us. And we stand before a holy and a powerful God who can destroy us and should rightly destroy us. But He wants to deliver us. He wants to save us. And when God brings judgment for those who have had the sense and the rendering of heart to say, God, I am sorry. Not, I don't want to get away from judgment. God, I'm so sorry that I've been so wicked and I've wasted this life that You've given me and I've treated people so poorly and I've treated You so bad. God will save. And He will not just save. He will redeem and restore. It will be a day of deliverance. So judgment should be feared, but also it's something that we long for. Some judgments we find from this passage can be averted. God judges nations. He's judged nations. He's judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He judged the world in a flood. right? He judges the world by creating all kinds of languages. God can judge all kinds of different ways. He judges the nations. We find out in in the Old Testament, he's still judging nations today. When our wickedness gets to a certain level, God will wipe us out. That's just what he does because he's good. God is still out there and he tells us that you don't have to face judgment. There are some judgments that can be averted. You can get away from them. If you repent and if you turn and if you go back to him, you can save yourself and, and the people around you. It matters. Righteousness matters today. For all of those Christians who say we are saved by God's grace through faith and we can live however we want. And if you abuse God's grace, you may be saved for your eternity. But there is judgment that will come. This book reminds us that we don't have to suffer judgment. That some can be averted. And so it matters that we live righteously. It matters that we live in such a way that honors God. And there's a reason, I mean, there's, there's actually benefit to us if we do that. So today is a day of repentance. But the day of the judgment, the last one cannot be avoided. There will come a time that this tells us that God will judge the world. Don't let anybody fool you. Some people are saying, well, Jesus was 2,000 years ago. He's not coming back. You know, the scriptures tell us that, that people are going to say that. And they're saying that now, aren't they? And we think in, on our lives, oftentimes, I've lived a good long life. I haven't seen God come back yet. Well, it's not precedented. 
Right? It hasn't happened before. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. Jesus will come back. Don't be fooled. This world will be judged. And so, because of that, we need to make sure we're ready. We need to make sure that, that we are repentant. There is time today still to fall upon the mercy and the love and the grace of God. So let's do it. That's what we need to do. So as we bring this message to a close, how do you bring some application to this? Well, take out your, your connection card, that, uh, that green card on the back side. I have some things that I think are timely and important. First one, memorize Joel 2.13. This is a heavy message. This is scary, but this passage tells you, this one tells you how to have hope. Our hope is in ourselves. If you think you're going to be good enough to avoid judgment, good luck. If you think you're going to be rich enough or that you're going to be well secured enough, the fact that we live in a nation that's got a great military and a good economy, that's not going to help you much. But this passage tells us that if we put our refuge in God, we put it in a good place. And so find your hope in God, for He is merciful, passionate, filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not to punish. Maybe this week you need to remind yourself of this. Remind yourself of the holiness of our God, but the love and the mercy of our God. Spend some time with Him and make sure that you're turning to Him. This is where your security must be found. Maybe something else you can do is read the book of Joel. I know it's an uncomfortable book. I think too often times we spend too much time in the books that make us comfortable. And it doesn't do us any good. God gave us this message so we could live with eyes wide open. It's not to scare us, but to remind us of God's holiness and His power and the reality of who He is. And to give us hope that someday this world is going to have an end and He's going to bring His own. Maybe you need to spend some time with Joel this week. Or how about this? Maybe your prayer this week is to repent. Maybe you're, you're not a Christian yet. Maybe you haven't followed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This has got to be your time. I mean, you don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know. We don't know when He's coming back. But I do know this. While you are still breathing today, there is still time to repent. There is still time to turn to Him and say, God, I, I need your protection. I want to turn to you. I want to follow you because this world is not... This is not where I'm going to find my, my, my peace. Maybe today you need to stop following yourself as your own little God or some other, some other false religion that's not going to save you. And you need to turn to Jesus Christ who can save you and will save you because He loves you and is merciful. Maybe that's what you need to do. But maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. But you're abusing grace. You know you're doing things that God doesn't want you to do. You know it. But you're like, God's gonna, he's not going to bring about any type of... He, he's going to love me through this. It's fine. Maybe you need to stop playing footsie with God and realize that He is the Almighty. And, and realize that your faith is not a game. God takes it very seriously. And there are huge consequences. And you say this week, I'm going to repent. I need to walk away from those dead things that are killing me. And I need to turn back to this Holy One of Israel the God who can save me. Maybe that's your prayer this week. And that's going to be a prayer that you have to pray a lot because we find ourselves always going back to those old masters. And God is merciful, but we need to turn away from them. And when I turn back, I need to turn away again. I need to repent. And maybe that's your prayer. 
Or how about this return? Maybe it's one of those things that's not just been walking away from God. You've just been walking on your own. You've been asking God to join you on your path of life instead of saying to God, what is the path that you want for me? Maybe it's one of those things you stop asking God to bless your plans and you, ask, you say, God, how can I bless your plans, God? How can I get involved with what you're doing? I want to return to you. Maybe this week your action is to return back to the life God has for you instead of asking God to, to make a life for you the way you want it. Maybe that's what you need to do. And that's a great thing to do because I will tell you this, God's plans for us are far better than the ones we ever had for ourselves. God's plans for this world are far better than the ones that we certainly can do. God's love and his leadership and his kindness, we can trust him. And that's actually what repentance is all about. It's just turning lordship of my life back over to him and saying, he's the boss because he knows better than I do. Even when I disagree with him, he still knows better. And so this week, maybe it's just a return. So God, take me back. And here's the thing, there's still time right now. He'll take you back. And he can use your life for something amazing, but you have to come back to him. Maybe that's what you need to do. Well, I don't know what your decision or Maybe there's something else on there. Make sure you write that down if there's something different that I didn't think of because I'm going to pray for you. Maybe you have a prayer request. Jot that down because we love to pray for you. Our God is merciful and kind and he hears our prayers and he joins us and we love to pray for you. So make sure you write that down. And here in just a minute, we're going to collect all those cards along with their tithes and offerings as we put those in the basket. All right, so let's, let's uh, pray as we prepare for our offering. Let's do the Heavenly Father. Thank you for being you, that you are holy. In fact, you are, you are holy to a level we can't even comprehend. Even the angels in heaven who, who are in your presence say, holy, 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 different, other. Lord, you are incorruptible. You are merciful beyond measure and we don't deserve it, but you give us love because that's your nature. Father, I pray for us as a church. Help us to come to you with bended knee and with a heart willing, Father. Let us rend our hearts, not just our emotions, Lord. Let us come back to you and afresh. Thank you for always taking us. And Lord, we live in a world that is just so lost. You've called us to be your lights. Help us to shine for you. Beacons of hope of your mercy and your love. And Father, when you come back, may our banner be clear. Help us to follow you fully. And Lord, with these commitments that are being made now, I pray that they wouldn't just be checks on a card, but Father, you would change our very spirits from the inside out. Take our faithfulness and make us faithful. Father, I pray too that you would take our tithes, our offerings, our gifts. May they be a symbol back to you that we depend upon you. We trust you. It is our joy to obey you because you alone are worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name.